Uh, four years ago, a Dallas police officer named Amber Geiger was off duty when she entered someone else's apartment thinking it was her own. Seeing a man she thought was an intruder, Amber shot and killed him. That innocent man was Botham John. The jury sentenced Amber to 10 years in prison. But at her sentencing, the world witnessed a remarkable act. Botham's younger brother, Brant, took the stand and forgave Amber after she apologized. He then requested to give Amber a hug, later saying this was his way of letting her know she was truly forgiven. Many rejoiced at Brant's forgiveness, especially since he pointed Amber explicitly to Jesus. What surprised me, though, was the outrage from others. Some viewed Brant's forgiveness as a problem that will only perpetuate what they called white power. Others mocked him, implying that he had betrayed their race. I was shocked. Not just Christians, but even secular studies have shown the benefits of forgiveness to relationships as well as to one's ongoing mental health. There have been historical precedents where forgiveness played a key role in the mending of communities. And yet some hated what he did. Now there were others more careful quick to point out specific ways that forgiveness often goes misunderstood, or how some perpetrators of real wrongs have used forgiveness to excuse sin or to escape accountability. But others were pushing ideas that made those who viewed themselves as victims completely exempt from forgiveness. And that's why they responded so negatively to Brandt forgiving Amber. But Brandt later responded this way. I want people to have the heart that God has. This may have just been about God and what God would want me to do in this situation without even looking at race. That's exactly what our passage is about today. Having the heart of God in forgiving those who've done us wrong. The world may be confused about forgiveness, but our Lord Jesus is not. So let's learn from Him today that we too might have the heart God has. In Matthew 18, Jesus has been explaining the communal life of those who belong to His kingdom. And we have seen things like humility, That should characterize the church, uh, a high regard for one another, a hatred for sin and its devastating consequences. Um, Also, ways that we would emulate God's care for one another. But in verses uh, 21 to 35, Jesus addresses forgiveness. Forgiveness must also characterize his people. But watch out lest you assume, ah, piece of cake. The forgiveness he calls us to is just as boundless 
as his father's, and those unwilling to grant it should fear for their soul. Let's read it together, starting in verse 21. These are the Lord's words. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. And so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him over to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Our passage has three parts to it. The first is Peter's question about forgiveness. Peter's question about forgiveness in verses 21 and 22. Peter asks about forgiving my brother. So the focus here is still the community of faith. Uh, We may draw inferences from this passage on forgiving those outside the church, but the immediate concern is how forgiveness must characterize the church, God's people. Also, given the context of correction and repentance, in verses 15 to 17, it's safe to assume that Peter's question is about forgiving those who repent and ask for forgiveness. That'll become clearer in Jesus' parable as well. Both of the servants cry, have mercy upon me, right? Have patience with me. But this leads Peter to a question, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now, Peter recognizes the need to forgive, but surely there's a reasonable limit. Now, some teachers in Peter's day were saying that three, three times was sufficient. Peter goes for seven. And why wouldn't he, right? In the scriptures, seven often represents completeness. So surely, seven times was enough. But Jesus goes higher. I do not say to you seven times, 
but 77 times. Now, some translations use 70 times 7, but the wording here uh, actually appears only one other place in Scripture, uh, and it's in Genesis chapter 4, verse 24, and there it's 77, um, where it talks about Cain's revenge being sevenfold, but Lamech's revenge is 77-fold. And the point there in Genesis 4 was, was a way of saying that Lamech's vengeance was without limits. He wouldn't hesitate to kill anybody. Well, quite the opposite. Jesus is telling Peter to forgive his brother without limits. Jesus is to forgive, I mean, uh, Peter is to forgive them without hesitation. The point isn't that once they've hit 78, you say, too bad. Right? No, the point that Jesus is making is stop counting at all. Jesus makes a similar point in Luke chapter 17, verses 3 and 4. He says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. But what does it mean to forgive someone? Well, the word itself has to do with releasing someone from a legal or moral consequence. That doesn't mean all temporal consequences are immediately eliminated. Take David, you know, having Uriah killed, for example, and God puts away David's sin, but there were still consequences that David had to endure. Still, the idea of releasing someone uh, is a helpful way to understand forgiveness. In chapter 6 of Matthew, verse 12, Jesus had illustrated forgiveness already with releasing a debt. Right? When, when he's teaching the disciples how to pray, he says, Father, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And so the idea there is that a person who sins against you is in your debt, so to speak. But to forgive them means to release that debt. You no longer hold that debt against them. You no longer uh, count that wrong against them. We find the same thing illustrated in Jesus' parable that we read earlier. In fact, I think the parable uh, also helps us see that forgiveness is not a way of sweeping things under the rug. It's not pretending like nothing wrong happened. It's not making excuses for sin. No, in the parable, the king acknowledges that there's really a debt to pay here. If forgiveness means ignoring sin, then that would undermine Jesus' teaching in the previous section when he was talking about going to your brother and correcting their sin. Forgiveness comes to terms with the sin that's been committed. It looks at the sin truthfully, accurately. But then what else do we learn about forgiveness in the parable? Verse 27. The master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. 
So instead of requiring him to pay it off, the king absorbs the loss himself and lets the man go. We also shouldn't miss the relational component here in forgiveness. You know, nowadays, uh, forgiveness is often reduced to something that's done privately for one's psychological well-being. And there's truth to it, to forgiveness having those benefits. But forgiveness is also relational. Notice how the king has pity on the servant. So forgiveness here in the parable, we see it growing out of uh, from, from a compassion for the person who, sinned, who sins against us. And throughout Scripture, forgiveness is always in service of that relationship. So when God forgives us, right, it is for the purpose of reconciling us to himself, in relationship to himself. Again, that's not to say that all temporal consequences of sin are immediately eliminated. But in forgiveness, we're still making a commitment to pardon the offender, to no longer use the incident to to push them away. And so in sum, we could say that forgiveness has several components. Right? In forgiveness, we acknowledge the debt, the the sin that's been committed against us. Uh, we, we uh, We then have compassion. We show compassion Uh, for the person who's in our debt, and then we release that that debt to serve the relationship with that individual. And how many times are we supposed to be willing to do this? Well, Jesus says an unlimited number of times. The Christian must forgive his brother or sister without limits. His point is stop counting how many times you've forgiven somebody. Now, apart from God's grace changing it, that's, that's contrary to the way our flesh thinks. Our flesh doesn't want to release our offender. Our flesh wants to punish them. Our flesh doesn't want to absorb their debt. Our flesh wants them to pay up. Our flesh wants to keep the, that record of wrongs done to us, locked and loaded, just ready to decimate that offender. As I mentioned earlier, some even view forgiveness as yielding power to the oppressor. And so they would say, no, you don't forgive. You make them pay and keep paying. And that's where our flesh goes apart from God's grace. We want to limit forgiveness. But those who belong to Jesus' kingdom must forgive without limits. To withhold forgiveness endangers your soul. And that's where Jesus goes next. In the second part here, we see that Jesus tells a parable about forgiveness to reinforce why our forgiveness should be so boundless. And in the first part of the parable, we find a king who forgives an impossible debt. Jesus says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle... One was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, don't want you to miss this. All right? For someone in the first century to hear 10,000 talents would be like us hearing a bazillion dollars. Okay? A talent was worth 6,000 denarii. One denarius was a day's wages. So you could work 20 to 25 years 
and pay off one talent. In other words, paying off this debt is impossible. And that's the point. Jesus wants us to feel the impossibility of paying off this debt. He then continues, And since the servant could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. And so the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Notice, out of pity for him. The same word has already been used of Jesus three times in Matthew's Gospel. Chapter 9, verse 36 It says Jesus had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless. Chapter 14, verse 14, Jesus had compassion on them and healed their sick. uh, Chapter 15, verse 32, Jesus had compassion on the crowd since they had nothing to eat. And so also here, the the king, he hears the man's cry for mercy and his heart goes out to him with compassion. Forgiveness will always begin there with compassion. He's filled with compassion and he releases him from this impossible debt. But look at what happens next. The servant refuses to copy the forgiveness that's shown him. Verse 28, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Okay, that's the equivalent of 0.0000167 of what the first servant owed. In other words, it's nothing compared to the first servant's debt. But seizing him... He began to choke him, saying, you pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. It's even worded the same way. Maybe it will remind the first servant of the same words he had cried earlier. But unlike the king, we find no compassion in the first servant. It says he refused and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And then in the final scene, Jesus then pictures the severe consequences for those who don't forgive. Verse 31, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in, his, and in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers. Don't think normal jailer here either. The word refers to those who are appointed to torture. His master delivered him over to the, the torturers until he should pay all his debt. Point being, he never would. The debt he owed was impossible to pay off. And that brings us to the last part of this section in verse 35. Jesus explains the point of the parable.
He says, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And so now we're supposed to go back, through, go back to the parable and read and understand the parable in light of what Jesus has revealed. The king is his father. So to begin here, we need to consider a few things. The compassionate king who forgives an impossible debt illustrates what our heavenly father is like. As I said before, Jesus compares sin to a debt In chapter 6, verse 12, our sins against God have earned us an impossible debt, is the point. God has shown us in His law what is right and holy and good, yet every infraction of God's law has sunk us deeper and deeper and deeper into debt. James tells us that to fail in one point of the law is to become accountable for all of that, all of it. More than that, God is infinitely holy. And so to sin against Him is a crime deserving of the highest penalty. There's no way to pay off our debt. And yet God, in His pity for our helpless state, found a way to cancel our debt and forgive our sins. Later in the Gospel, we learn that God does this by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. He gives His own Son, whose worth is of infinite value. And Jesus sheds His blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And through Jesus' death, God absorbs our debt Himself. He cancels our debt and releases us from everything that is hindering our relationship to Him. The Bible has some great images to depict God's forgiveness. Psalm 51 describes it as blotting out our transgressions. So you can picture this this account where all of your wrongdoings are just listed out, all the accusations against you, and the the idea of blotting out in their day would have been like to wipe it all clean. That's what God does when He forgives our debt. He wipes it all clean. Psalm 103 uses this idea of a vast separation. As far as the the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Micah 7.18 is another great picture. God will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. Well, in Christ, God puts away our sins such that they're gone forever and they're forgotten about. And this parable is giving us yet another picture of what God's forgiveness is like. God's forgiveness is like canceling an impossible debt and releasing us from it. So if you trust in Christ today, God will release you from that impossible debt If you take God at His word, this is what God does for your debt. This parable also keeps things in perspective, doesn't it? The debt that was owed by the second servant was nothing compared to the debt owed to the king himself. 
Likewise, the debt that we are required to forgive others is nothing compared to the debt that God has forgiven us. Now, in no way does this minimize the horrific ways that humans can sin against one another. At the human-to-human level, some sins are incredibly more heinous than others. Some will have consequences that last decades, entire lifetime. But that's not the only level we must consider when it comes to forgiveness. At the divine-to-human level, even the most serious sins against us pale in comparison to our sins against God. It's much harder to forgive others when we've lost touch with how much God has forgiven us. But this parable adjusts our outlook. It reminds us that those who are forgiven much love much. Those who experience God's boundless compassion will show the same compassion for others. Those who know the depth of God's forgiveness of them will find joy forgiving the lesser debts of others. Notice, too, how Jesus adds the phrase, from your heart at the end. Forgiveness must come from your heart. Or it's not genuine forgiveness. Meaning forgiveness is not done begrudgingly, reluctantly. Fine, you're forgiven. It's not mere words that paper over the ongoing bitterness. No, much like the king's heart is filled with compassion for the servant, much like God's heart is filled with compassion for you, your heart must be filled with compassion toward the others who've wronged you. Forgiveness must be heartfelt with a genuine desire to reconcile and see things restored. By forgiving others, you display the very heart of God in the way God has forgiven you. So Brant John was right. I want people to have the heart that God has. That's the point of this parable. Those who know God's forgiveness will have the heart that God himself has. And it's one that forgives all who cry to him for mercy. But if that's not your heart, Jesus' parable threatens a terrible punishment. He says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. It's, it's much like the, the point that Jesus makes earlier in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 6, verse 14. He says, If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. What's the point? The point is that forgiven people forgive others. If you don't forgive others from your heart, you're proving that your heart has not been changed. You're proving that you don't really know God's forgiveness. 
It's scary when people say things like, I just can't forgive him. After what she did, I ain't forgiving her. Others are tempted to believe some of the ideas being pushed nowadays that exempt people from forgiving others. But Jesus' warning here is very clear. Those unwilling to forgive should fear for their soul. James chapter 2, verse 13. Judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. So, think about the various relationships that you have. Think about the people who've hurt you the most. It could be a spouse. It could be a son. It could be a daughter. It could be a parent or a sibling. It could be someone who was once a close friend. It could be a pastor, a leader you once trusted. Could be a church member, could be a coworker. Are you still holding their debt against them? Are you harboring bitterness against them? Are you still counting all the times that you've forgiven them already? It could be that you've forgiven them many times and then you just stopped. The number got too high. If that's you, you need to cry out to God for a change of heart. You need to ask Him to help you look on them with compassion and release them from their debt. And then you need to take a long look at the enormous, impossible debt that God forgave you in Christ. You need to take a long look at the pity that God showed you in your sinful state. Brothers and sisters, we are sinful people. We are going to hurt one another. Forgiveness is a must within the body of Christ. I'm so thankful to be the recipient of your forgiveness over the years when I have sinned against you. Such forgiveness is crucial to healthy relationships in the church, in the family, in a marriage, in care groups. That's why Colossians gives such general instructions like this in Colossians 3, verse 13. If someone has a complaint against another, make sure you're forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Last week we talked about the context of church discipline. Paul follows up with a, with a situation that seems to be like a situation where discipline had taken place, but he follows up with the Corinthians in chapter 2, verse 6. The church is being slow to forgive someone who had repented 
And Paul tells, tells them, look, guys, the punishment is enough. Turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. And then he warns them about Satan's schemes where there's a lack of forgiveness. We've seen, we've all witnessed perhaps, we've read about them in the news, where forgiveness rips relationships apart. A lack of forgiveness rips relationships apart. And a lack of forgiveness in a church rips a church apart. And Paul is telling, warning them, it's part of Satan's scheme. Where there's a lack of forgiveness, he will get a foothold and he will cause lots of disruption. So forgive him and comfort him, Paul says. Forgiven people forgive. Insofar as it depends upon you, is your disposition toward others one that stands ready and willing to forgive them? Some cases of sin are so bad that you might not think that you that you might be thinking that such forgiveness is impossible. But God can bring this about in you. As we close, I want you to consider this testimony from Corey Tenboom. She's she's known most for her book The Hiding Place. She and her family helped many Jews escape the Nazis during World War II. They would hide them in their homes. Eventually, though, she's caught. She and her sister and family are put in a concentration camp in Ravensbrück. She survives after the war and uh, went around speaking about God's forgiveness. But there was a moment when she's brought face to face with one of the guards who asks her forgiveness. Listen to her story. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. We, when we confess our sins, I said, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, and silence collected their wraps and in silence left the room. And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. So she's having, describing kind of a flashback here. It came back with a rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment of skin. 
Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. And this man had been a guard at Ravensbrück, concentration camp where we were sent. And now he was in front of me, hand thrust out, a fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take his hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, again his hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven, and I could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me, it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. And those who were able to forgive their former enemies were also able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars But those who nursed bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And and still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, 
And then his healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. I don't pretend to know the depth of hurt that some of you have experienced from the sins of others. But if you're struggling to forgive, God can do a work like this in you too. He can give you the heart that He Himself has. As we turn to the Lord's Supper, why don't we use this as a time to reflect on the impossible debt that God has forgiven us in Christ and then see what that might mean for the way we relate to others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great forgiveness of us in Christ. I pray that you would work in our hearts that we may forgive others. In Jesus' name, amen.